So as a theme for the new year, the, the issue that I'm bringing before us is um, uh, from a passage in Isaiah, where Isaiah writing to a group of people in the Babylonian captivity. They've been taken from their, their Jewish homeland, transported. They're in a deep sense of despair. And they're saying in Isaiah 40, they're saying, where is God in all of this? And Isaiah answers with an incredible statement. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is incomprehensible. He says he gives power to the faint, and he gives strength to those who have no might. Even young people will fall, and young men will stumble and fall, but here's the promise. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And, and so the, greater, the creator of the ends of the earth, the God who has no beginning and who has no end, loves us as a shepherd. It says earlier in the text, he cares for us. He cares for us so much that he empowers us and he gives us fresh strength for the journey. So, so, so the question is, what does it mean to wait upon the Lord? I want, I want that. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount with wings as eagles. I want that fresh strength. And, and to wait upon the Lord means to look to him with expectation and hope and belief and a better future and a God that's working in our lives. And I'm, I'm saying in the next few weeks, I'm talking about four ways we wait upon the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit in a prayerful mood. And that is we're people of the scripture we give ourselves to relationships. We understand our, our, our calling to live as men and women of God. And we understand the rhythm of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit does from week to week in our lives. So this week and last week, we're dealing with the issue of the authority of, or really the power of, the Scripture in our lives. And I'm in Psalm 1. And the Psalm 1 says this, blessed or happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on the law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he will prosper. Not so the wicked they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will be no more, will perish. So, so, so I gave some principles last week. I'm going to give you five principles this week, three very quickly, and the last two is what I want to uh, really think about today. Number one is this. If you look at verses 1 and 2, the pursuit of God, the going hard for God involves a refusal and an embrace. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or those who are impious. The wicked are people who say, there's no room for God in my worldview. God is inconsequential. 
And then he says, it doesn't stand in the way of sinners. You know, you, 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 you walk and then you stand, you're arrested, and the sinners are those who deserve blame. And then he says, it doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. He just stops and he luxuriates and he just stops. And, 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 and in this particular instance, the wicked are those who mock God. They, 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 they make light of God. They lampoon God and his purpose in, in their lives. It's, it's, it's a corresponding dissension into wickedness. No room for God, blameworthy, mock God. And what I want to say this morning is this. Point number one is, is, is the pursuit of God in this fashion must be joyful, arduous, intentional, and enthusiastic. First of all, let me talk to you about, about arduous, which means painstaking and intentional. Listen to me. If you do not intentionally pursue the things of God and think biblically, this culture will eat you alive. Boom. Eat you alive. Because we live in a world that by and large, I think in most places of academia, entertainment, whatever, is definitely at the very minimal, post-Christian. Um, at the very minimal, there are people that really don't have any concept of God or his truth or his standards in their worldview. And, and they produce sometimes beautiful movies, beautiful music, and those beautiful films, and those art things, they reflect that. They're going to reflect that. Let me get you in a time machine. Just a time machine, open the door, we're going to step inside. 1957, which is not that long ago, I was four at the end of 1957. My wife was still several years from being born. I'm very good. So anyway, 1957, there's a show called The Ed Sullivan Show. It is the number one show in America. It is Sunday night. And Ed Sullivan had all this talent on. It was, it was, uh, he would say, we're going to have a what? Those of you that are older. A really, really big show. A really, so the Beatles were introduced to us on the Ed Sullivan Show. Elvis Presley was introduced on the Ed Sullivan Show and caused a stir when he danced on stage. and It was kind of a scandal. But in 1957, Ed Sullivan wanted to have on his show a Swedish actress named Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman was from Sweden. She was married to a Swedish surgeon. Uh, she had come to Hollywood and taken it by storm with some incredible movies. She was very comfortable with who she was, an interesting person. But she went to Italy to make a movie under the leadership of a filmmaker named Rosalini. She left her husband. She took up with Rosalini. They were living together outside of marriage, and she became pregnant. And when Ed Sullivan heard that she was living outside of her marriage vows and she was pregnant with another man's wife who wasn't her husband, he, he, he took away the invitation for her to come to the Ed Sullivan Show. He said, we, can, we can't have this on the Ed Sullivan Show. In fact, several cities in America, when they found out about that, refused to show her movies. There was a U.S. senator who gave a news conference. He was asked about it, and he said, it grieves me, but I think she's a very bad example for what it means to be a moral person in our country today. And this is a U.S. senator. That's 1957. Let me suggest to you today that if somebody is living outside of marriage, and it was, uh, it's no big deal. 
In fact, if you, when, and you made a, a statement, by the way, Kanye West recently made a statement like this, and he's been fricasseed. If you, if you make a statement that says, you know, we really believe that God's pattern is for a man and a woman to live in a covenant called marriage, and anything outside of that doesn't get God's blessing. If you said that, you would not be invited to be on any talk show today unless it's the 700 Club, if that's still around. I don't know if it's still around. I mean, you're not, not going to be, it's not going to happen. Things have dramatically changed. The norm has changed. We love movies. We like movies, um, and we watch movies. And, and so this happens all the time now. And I'll just give a very tame example. So young man, young woman, meet, coffee shop, pine soccer, whatever. They, they decide they like each other. They start hanging out and they date, and they get romantic. And, and, and somewhere later in the movie, usually the man, sometimes the woman comes forward and says, she says, I really, I have something I want to ask you. She says, what's that? What's that? He says, I think we need to live together. <sighs> well, listen, that's a bad idea. It's a bad idea because it's outside of the blessing of God. It's a bad idea because, you know, if you're living together and you're always auditioning for the starring role, you never get it. You don't get it. Because when you live with somebody, you find out you're, they're sinners. And you're, you're gonna, you're, you're, you will not get the Academy Award. You won't even get Best Supporting Actor or Actress. So intimacy is a wonderful gift from God for marriage. That's what, we say. That's what the Bible says. And so just, just an aside, I say as a pastor of this church that, that, that if you are dating and living together before you're married and you claim the name of Jesus, don't do it. Repent. And there's forgiveness. Nobody's going to throw a stone at you. We understand those things. I certainly do. But, but we want to do what's in line with the Scripture. So that's what I'm saying. If you don't think arduously or, or deeply and strongly, the culture will swallow you alive because the standards and the norms are always changing, always changing, always changing. But, but also, it involves a joyful and an enthusiastic embrace. You, you reject that, but, it says, but his delight, I love that, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on that law, he will meditate day and night. It's, it's a joyful and enthusiastic embrace because as an old guy named Irenaeus said in the second century, the glory of God is man fully alive. I love that. The glory of God is man fully alive. We believe that there's, there's life in the Lord and is full of joy and peace and hope and purpose. I quoted last week, Proverbs 8 says, blessed is the man who listens to me, who, who, who daily, you know, waits or watches at my gates, who, who waits at my doors. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. I want that. And he who does not find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And how's that? All who hate me love death. So I, I want to obtain favor from the Lord. I want to walk under the authority of this book. I want to confess my sins and deal with the stuff of my life and go forward. Or I, I'm thinking about Proverbs 9 lately. Proverbs 9, verse 10, talks, says this, that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So I step back and said, do, do you want to have insight? Then be in the book. Do you want to be able to grapple with life? Be in the book. Listen to verse 11. This is so good. 
for by me your days shall be multiplied and years shall be added to your life. You say, what does that mean? Here's what it means. If, if you walk in the way of the Lord and, and you have a sense of trust in him and you believe that he is good, he's Abba Father, he's the son who died on the cross for your sin, he's the spirit who guides you through the word. If you believe that, then days are added to your life because you trust and, and years will be added to your life because you trust and you delight and you're not consumed with worry and heartache and chasing rabbit trails down here that ends in a, 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 an abrupt ending. I want that. Number two, the, the posture is delighting. I love the word delight. But his delight shall be in the law of his God. He treasures it. He, he, he glories in it. It's his delight because God is a God who gives you a future and a hope. God is gloriously good and his way is true and, 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 and wonderful. Probably, I'm just going to be quoting some verses today, so just hang in there. Psalm 19. This is a song that talks about the glory of creation, how the creation shouts forth the praise of God, just screams it. Then he talks about the, the authority of Scripture. The law of, the, God is, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. It gets down to verse 10. And it says, sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. That's what the word is. Now, I love honey honey. I love honey. I could eat honey five times a day. I'm a honey aficionado. When I first, when we were first married, I bought five gallons of honey and put it in our small apartment. We never ran out of honey. It was there. He says, and he says to people who love honey, that the word of God is sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And then he says this, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And I read the Bible and it says, don't go there. Don't do that. Be careful. Keep your mouth shut. Be prayerful. Rejoice. Be kind. So, so by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So, so the posture is delight. Number three. And on this law, he will meditate day and night. I mentioned this last week. Let me hit it again, just a few minutes. Meditation means to chew, to think, to sing, to murmur, to talk out loud. You take the word of God and you turn it upside down and you think and you murmur and you sing it and you're glad in it and you ask yourself, what does this mean to my life, my relationship, my walk with, with the Lord, the way I treat my wife or my coworkers, whatever. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm on a Bible reading plan right now. I try to read through the Bible every year. I think that's wonderful. But I would plead with you to think about being a person who meditates on the Bible, which means you think deeply about it. You take a verse or two verses and you, and you put, it on, I've got it right here, put it on the index card and you put it in your wallet uh, and, and you get a friend or a group of people and say, let's meditate on these two verses the next three or four weeks. And, and so you take, the, and, and you're at a stoplight, and it's a two-minute stoplight. And you pull it out, and you start thinking through the verse. This is the, I just pulled this out of, my, out of my file. Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. So, so you, 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 you take this, and you say, Lord, the Holy Spirit wants to build in me love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness. So, so Lord, how can I effect more joy in my life? I want to be joyful. What brings joy to the child of God? Well, you say, well, I understand who Jesus is for me, what he's done for me. Let me rejoice in the goodness of Christ. Lord, you know, and I would pray this, Lord, you know I am not by nature a kind person. I'm just not. And yet I know the Holy Spirit wants to make me kind. How... How can I display kindness? Well, maybe I should call this person, and I thought about this this morning, who has always showed a spirit of kindness to me. And we know this is a composite of who Jesus is. Lord, I, want, I know you want to produce Jesus in me. So you think deeply. Now, let me say this, and I, would be, I want you to hear me. It is very difficult to meditate in a culture that is in 2020. I've just read a book recently. I recommend the book. It's called Disruptive Witness. And this is what the guy says in the book. He says, he says, basically, because we go from fix to fix to fix to fix to fix with our iPhones, we can't think well. He's a professor. It's a good book. I'm just going to read part of what he says. It's in the sermon guide. The habits we adopt form our desires, which drive our beliefs. When those habits form desires for immediacy, superficiality, continual engagement, and instant gratification, we should expect our beliefs to reflect these desires. The content of our beliefs will be formed by our habits. And then he goes on, and he just talks about how we live in an age when we, we just go from fix to fix to fix to fix to fix, and we, we, we don't think well. He says, we're not thinking well. I think of the psalm that says, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. He talks about how the average American checks their, their text messaging at least 60 times a day. 60 times a day. Boom, 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 boom. You have the, you're, you're thinking. You have the ding, 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 notification. Somebody says, oh, wow, there's a thunderstorm in Arizona. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you're going, and it just takes, it just takes you away. And so he, he, it's a strong statement about we've got to discipline ourselves to think well. There's a book that we read as a staff. Some of our community groups are reading. It's called The Common Rule. It's just eight practices. It's, it's very helpful. But there are four practices you do every day. There are four practices you do weekly. But, but two of the practices that you do every day is one hour with the phone off. Boom. You just turn it off. There's a guy here that taught this book to us in part, and he gave a great statement. He said that when he goes home at night, at 6 o'clock, he turns his phone off and he puts it above the microwave. And he says he'll check it right before he goes to bed in case something's happened. But, but he does that so he can play with his kids and listen to his wife. I read a study this week in a major magazine that said this. He said, if you are having lunch with somebody and you've turned your mobile devices off, but they're still on the table, that will inhibit your conversation. It's amazing. Because you may be thinking, well, what should I turn it on? Am I missing something? It's just, so we go from fix to fix to fix. I'm telling you, it's absolutely essential and important. There's a book called The Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis. This is an old book. I'll tell you why it's an old book. How much did I pay for that book? $1.99. It's an old book. I paid full price for this about 45 years ago for $1.99, okay? So, but it's a great book. It's, this book is written in 1942 which for many of you is 
right, right before the Peloponnesian Wars, okay? 1942, and uh, yeah, that went over the right side. That's not a good example. Anyway, so, so letter 22, this, this, these are letters from a senior demon to a junior demon about how to derail a Christian. So that's the written from a demon's perspective. And I'll just read this. This has nothing to do with what I want to say. I just think it's cool. He says that the patient has fallen in love with the Christian woman. He says this. <laughs> he said, and, and the type of Christian we hate. A vile, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread and butter miss, the little brute. She makes me want to vomit. She, st she stinks and scowls through the very pages of her dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. We'd have had her in the arena in the old days being eaten by lions. That's what her sword is made for. Not that she'd do much good there either. She's a two-faced little cheat. I know the sword who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood and then dies with a smile on her face as she worships her God. Amen. Okay. Now let's go to what I want to say. He talks about noise. This is what the demon says. 1942. This is long before the TV was even thought of. So this is a long time ago. It says, music and noise, music and silence. <clears throat> the demon says, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell the long, long, long ago, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of them, to those abominable forces, beautiful music or noise. But all has been occupied by noise, noise, the grand dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and viral. Noise which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We've already made the great strides in that direction as regards to the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. 1942. And I, I think about our distracted age, and, and I do it too, guys. I, I've got an iPad, and I, I, when I read these books, what's the book we read, Matt, about um, your friend wrote about the things of this earth, but knows about the, using the iPads and stuff. Twelve ways your iPhone is ruining your life. It's changed. Twelve ways your iPhone is changing you. <laughs> Twelve ways your iPhone is changing you. Thank you. So anyway. And I, 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 I said, guilty, 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 guilty. The other night, <clears throat> so I was sitting there, having a really good evening, and she's just reading her phone. I said, what, what are you reading? She says, man, I'm reading about, I won't tell you their names, but a couple who are about to denounce their royalty. <laughs> okay? And she says, I, and she, 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 she's just kind of into that. I could care less. We fought the Revolutionary War, so we have to put up with those clowns. You know what I mean? <laughs> so anyway, so here they are. So she's reading it. And I said, you know, give it a rest. And she goes, tell you what, I'll quit reading about Megan if you quit reading ESPN. I said, keep on reading, sister. Keep on reading. <laughs> so, so, I mean, we're all guilty, okay? So I'm, 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 I'm okay, anyway, enough said about that. Um, number four, this is the good part. Verses four and five, fruit bearing, the promise. This is so good. He says, if you do this, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, 
You'll be strong and viral, and whatever you do will prosper. So first, let's take it apart. But planted by streams of water. We know from the New Testament, the streams of water, Isaiah, excuse me, Psalm 46, John 7 is Jesus. In John 7, at the great feast, Jesus stood up and cried out. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. By this, he spoke of the Holy Spirit, who those who believed in him were to receive, because the Spirit had not been universally poured out, because Jesus had not yet been crucified. So what Jesus is saying that I am the living water. So we need to be planted by the streams of Jesus. And so what we say is that, is that we are people who, who we can't pull it off unless Jesus nourishes us. Don't look at the tree. The tree is being nourished by the water. So listen, brothers and sisters, we are planted by the streams of living water. The second part is this, we, we will yield our fruit in our season. I, I want to be fruit yielding. I want, to, I want to produce fruit that's honoring to Christ. I want to live a life of purpose and dignity. And then it says this, the leaf never withers or you'll be strong and vital. Psalm 92 in the worship guide talks about being vital as you grow old. And the last two verses of that passage says this. He says, they're like, they're like a palm tree planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish. And it says this, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. So it says that they, they, they will bear fruit in old age. They're full of sap and they're green. They declare that the Lord is upright. Now, I want that. And you say, well, what's old age? Well, Psalm 90 says that we live to be 70 or maybe 80. So I look at this and say, old age is... 70 and 80. It says that as you trust in the Lord, listen, young people, you trust in the Lord, you orient your life around the things of the Lord, and as you get old, you will flourish and you'll prosper and you'll say the Lord is good. And you'll be glad. Planted, fruit yielding, leaf doesn't wither. Let me take an aside here. And he says this. And he prospers. When what God calls you to do, the task he puts before you, as you walk in obedience and brokenness, you prosper. And what prosper, prosper looks like is, 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 is up to the Lord, but, but, but we go forward in obedience. So, one minute, discuss something. There is a teaching out there called the Health and Wealth Movement. It's incredibly popular, especially in the third world countries, which blows my mind, because basically the health and wealth movement says this, if you do not have health or wealth, it's because you lack faith. Because God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. I read where someone was asked one time about this movement, and they said, I will give them a listening ear when they show me a 300-year-old faith healer. You get it? They're not there. Everybody dies. And really the bounty, atrophying, and death is the result of sin that's been visited in the world. It just is. So you've got people over here that says it's all about health and wealth. And, and, and those are people that I, I don't think we should listen to. And that includes Joel Osteen, who's not as bad as some. That includes um, 
Kenneth Hagen. That includes uh, Joyce, Joyce Meyer. And because there's no cross, there's no glory in the blood, usually. Now, I think it's, just, I think it's dangerous. But, but here, it's the peril of the pendulum. So what's happened, we've seen this error, and it is error, okay? And we've come over here, and we've kind of said, well, let's just hang in there until Jesus comes again. Let's just, let's just, let's just, it, it, life is going to be tough and rough, and, and it's going to be bad, really, really, really bad. Let's just hang in there until Jesus comes again. And what I'm saying is, I think biblically, we need to be somewhere around here. Let me give you a couple of verses. This is Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, the apostle Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, he says, we've left everything and we followed you. And then Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in, in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. There are people sitting here today. I think of one person that I've enjoyed talking to and just a delightful person and, and this person has come to faith. And she's come to faith in Jesus, and she's embraced the gospel, and she wants to walk in the gospel, and her family is vehemently opposed to what she's doing. So vehemently opposed that they're, they're really talking to this individual about, you're really not welcome here. It's hard. This summer, I think I'm going to have a chance to speak at a seminary in northern Africa to 50, 60, 70 people. Many of them... Have been, uh, have been declared dead by their Muslim background families. Just, we declare you to be dead. You're dead. You're dead to us. But this individual I'm thinking of is part of our college ministry. And all of a sudden she has 150, 200 brothers and sisters and some mothers and fathers, plural. And she goes to homes and she's part of the body of Christ. And it is good. It is good. So we rejoice in that. Yes, it's hard. There are persecutions. But boy, God blesses us. But listen to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this. He says, chapter 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Hear that? Godliness with contentment, great gain. You're content because God is sovereign king. He watches over you. He, he guards your life. Not a hair can fall from my head without his knowledge. Wow. And he says this. He's talking about the rich people. And he says, command those who are rich in this present world don't, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in the living God. Verse 18. They are to be good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Say, so, okay, yeah, heaven, you give. Well done, good and faithful servant. Reward of the judgment seat of Christ? Absolutely. Listen to the last clause in this verse, which is verse 19 of 1 Timothy 6. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Present tense. 
Do you want to really take hold of life? Do you want to really enjoy life? Do you want to see life in all of its dimensions and its glory and its hope and its forward thinking? And you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and despair with a sense of hope? Then take hold of the gospel and get outside of yourselves and live for Jesus and care for people. And don't be consumed with me, but be consumed with him. And I read that and I go, wow, prosper. So I'm telling you, church, prosper by looking to the Lord and, and, and rejoicing in him. And very quickly, verse 5, not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. See, chaff was the outside of the wheat kernel. If you've ever seen that, if you've ever held chaff in your hand, you could hold 500 pieces of chaff here and you wouldn't even feel them as far as the weight. I mean, they're so light that you even wonder why they don't float away like a bubble. They're just, you drop them, they just go to the ground and, and just the littlest breeze. Instead of being rooted, they're chapped. We live in a culture, brothers and sisters, where people just blow with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Elton Trueblood was a Quaker theologian, ethicist, really good guy. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, he talked about a cut flower generation. Okay, cut flowers are, you know, you take your flowers home to people and say here and they're beautiful and they put them in a vase and they put water in it, but they have no roots and they're there for maybe five, six, seven days, but then they just wilt. He says, we, are, we live in the cut flower generation. I would say we live in the chaff generation. Be rooted. Be rooted in a culture that doesn't believe in roots. I mean, be rooted. So I'm saying about a guy. He was a, one of the most well-known people of the 20th century. He was the leader of a country for 12 years. He would have people into his house, and, and every night he would give monologues for an hour or two, and it was faithfully written down. It was called his table talk which is a takeoff take from something, a guy named Martin Luther, which grieves me. But anyway, it was called his table talk, and he would espouse the most ridiculous things in the world, and people would sit there, smile, and they would not. This guy said that, he said that uh, potato peels cure uh, tropical diseases. He said that he could read the minds of dogs. He could look in their eyes and read what they were thinking. I wouldn't tell you what they were thinking. He believed that the earth and the moon collided 10,000 years ago and developed the moon's orbit. He believed that Jews could not feel cold. He just said stupid things. I can give you on and on and on. Stupid things. He said he was a very unattractive guy, not physical stature much, uh, was really a clownish character looking back. And yet, arguably, the most advanced civilization in the world in the 1930s and 1940s followed him into hell, into a war that would cost 50 million lives. His name was Adolf Hitler. Bizarre guy, just a bizarre guy. Surrounded by people with incredible intellects. If you ever read about the intellectual powerhouse around him, it was unbelievable. But they sat there nodding. And one reason, one reason why is Hitler preyed upon their sympathies. He said, the reason we lost World War I, we're the greatest people in the world. How do we lose World War I? Well, the Jewish banking interest said we will no longer finance your war and we had to surrender. That's a lie. 
And so he played upon their economic fears. There was a worldwide collapse in 1929 called the stock market collapse, the Wall Street collapse. And Germany suffered even more so than we did because our economy was already in the tank because of war reparations. And he said, I'll make us stronger economically. And he did to a degree. And he played upon their ethnic concerns. He says, the German people are the greatest ethnicity in the world. And the only reason we're not strong is that we have not eliminated those undesirable groups like the Slavic groups or especially the Jews. And they murdered six million Jews. And I step back and I look at people that surrounded him and they were nodding. There are people that, that didn't go for it. The church went for it. They developed what they call the confessing church. And Hitler said, replace the cross with the swastika. And many of them said, yes, a good idea. But can you believe that? There were exceptions. Guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Neimoller and Karl Barth, but they were the minority. And so I asked myself, how, how, did, they, how did they go there? Here's, here's the answer. No roots. If you have no roots, then runaway nationalism, ethnocentric thinking, stupidity can rule the day. I'm saying to you, have roots. You think well. I think of the no-rooted generation compared to, I love the, the guy named Joseph in the New Testament, the book of Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He interprets a dream. He's in prison. The guy this dream interpreted comes to a place of power, comes somewhat in the inner circle of the king. And three years later, the, current, the king has a dream. And the guy says, oh, there is a guy who's a dream interpreter. And it says, send for him. And the Bible says, they lifted Joseph out of the pit. He's in prison. He's not in a minimum security thing. He's in the pit. And, and they had to shave his body and wash him and put clean clothes on him. And he goes before the Pharaoh, the king of all of Egypt, the man. And he says, I've had a dream. And he says, stop, sir. This is what he says. He says, he says God will give Pharaoh, a favorable answer if he so desires. In other words, don't look at me. I'm just a tree planted by streams of water. It's God who does it. And Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. Centuries later, a guy named Daniel, involved in the Babylonian captivity, he's there. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. Or tell him what his dream was. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, because all of these prophets and astrologers and dream interpreters can't tell me what I've said, the whole lot of them are going to be killed. Now, there, there was a, the prophets and the dream interpreters were all lumped together. Daniel was not part of that, but he was called a prophet. And so he's told that's going to happen. They're going to be murdered. He calls his three friends together, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, Let us, let's pray and let's cry out to God to have, mercy, to have mercy upon us. And maybe God in his mercy will allow me to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And they prayed and they sought God. Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what Daniel says. He says, O king, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he may be pleased to reveal your mystery. Don't look at me. I'm a plant. There's streams of water here. He's rooted. So very quickly, 1857, the Supreme Court of the United States of America rules seven to two that the Constitution of the United States is in the case called the Dred Scott case. Dred Scott was a slave who was taken to free territory. And because he was taken to free territory, Dred Scott said, as some, he was helped by some people, that, that he's now a free man. And went to the Supreme Court. 
says the Constitution of the United States was not meant to include American citizenship for black people, regardless if they're slave or free. And here's a direct statement from the Chief Justice Tanny. He says, perpetual and impossible barriers have been intended to be erected between the white race and the one which has been reduced to slavery, close quote. In other words, a slave or a black man is less human than a white man. Charles Evans Hughes, who later was Chief Justice, says it's the most horrendous, stupid, inane decision ever made by the Supreme Court. That was in 1918. And I, I asked myself, where were the people that had swallowed the compass? Who said, as I read the Bible, there's no room for ethnocentricity. All men and women are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. In spite of race, in spite of economics, in spite of sexual orientation, in spite of gender identity, all people are made in the image of God and they're worthy of respect and Christian love. Where were, the, where were the planted people? And the planted people didn't speak up. You know what happened? There was a war four years later and 620,000 people were killed. And thankfully the 13th and 14th Amendments reversed this stupid decision. Be planted. Do you want to destroy racism? Get planted. You say, God has made every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation in his image. 1973. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. 1973, the Supreme Court ruled once again 7 to 2 that abortion could become the law of the land based upon the 14th Amendment, which is wild, but anyway. And Wizard White and William Rehnquist voted in the minority. God bless them. And since that time, we've aborted 70 million babies. But you get together with a simple Bible reader who's been planted by the streams of water, who's nourished by Jesus and who loves the word of God, and you say to them, isn't abortion a hard issue? Listen, abortion is a hard issue. There are people here today who've aborted children. There are people here who fathered children that were aborted. There are moms and dads here who drove their child or their, their son's girlfriend to the abortion clinic. There's forgiveness and freedom under the blood of Jesus. But we still must speak and speak it truthfully. You get a simple Bible reader to just read the Bible, and you say, well, what does the Bible say about life? He says, well, the Bible says that, 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 that uh, we are fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm 139. Jeremiah says, you knew me in the womb. In fact, when, when John the Baptist was in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, and he heard the voice of her pregnant cousin named Mary, who was bearing the Lord Jesus, he leapt for joy. So we believe God is the author of life and life is sacred. And so when we come to political issues, my first question is, where do you stand on the sanctity of human life? Yeah, that's, to me, that's your tax policies. So, so I would just say, get planted, be planted. Speak with brokenness and love and tenderness, but speak. May God bless us as we do that. There's a quote I wanted to show you by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, just, it's just wonderful. 
And this is what Lewis says. This is mere Christianity. And it has everything to do with how we live our life right now. It says, it says good and evil. Oh, good. We've got it. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. Now listen to this. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. What Lewis is saying is that the way we walk in obedience today, the way way we respond to situations builds habits that leads to character, that leads to destiny. Therefore, May, I be, may you be planted by streams of water and be nourished. May you produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. May you be strong and vital, and may you prosper under the good hand of God. I, I just this, I, we, for those of you in the sanctuary, we, we sang a song in here. I just, I thought, this is so good. I wrote it down on my to-do list for the week, right above, write one letter per day. That's not part of the lyrics. <laughs> Listen to this. By your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Man, that is good theology. That is good. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Man. Where's that song from? Can you tell me? Well, okay. Did Dustin write it? He didn't? Okay. It's good. Our God has robbed the grave. Your name is victory. All praise will rise to you, our praise will rise to our king. And then another song, even when I don't feel that you are working, you never stop. You're the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the light, the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Amen. Amen. So church, go forward in faith. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the, the day. And I really pray we'd be planted, be planted by the nourishing stream of Jesus. And I pray we produce fruit in keeping with, with our faith. I pray we would be a flourishing group and we would prosper under your hand. Lord, we don't know if that means great victories or if it means that we'll, we'll walk with joy through deep disappointments, but, but we know that your presence is with us and your spirit guides us. I pray we'd be very cognizant that we live in a generation where people just blow back and forth and back and forth. And that we'd be planted, just be planted, people. Thank you for the goodness of Christ, the goodness of the Spirit, taking the Word of God and making application in Jesus' name. Amen.